Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This series discusses drug use, child abuse, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. This is The Fall Line. Lincoln, Alabama isn't a big place. With a population just under 7,000, you might imagine it as a quiet east-central manufacturing town along Interstate 20. The West City boundary is hugged by the Coosa River and Logan Martin Lake, Plenty of fishing and pretty views where the Ridge and Valley region and the Piedmont region meet. The city's residents really do have it all. The highest mountain in Alabama is only a 30-minute drive. Hiking trails and caves, waterfalls, national parks. And then, of course, there's NASCAR. A lot of traffic passes through Lincoln. On its outskirts sits the Talladega Speedway where over 80,000 or more fans gather to watch NASCAR events 10 months of the year. The overspill of that kind of tourism can be a boon to a city's economy. It can also have an effect on crime. The most recent FBI report with Lincoln Stats from 2018 put its rates at roughly four times the average of comparable cities. But the Lincoln County Police Department staff of 18 officers is large compared to national averages. A 2016 federal survey found that half the nation's departments, in total, had fewer than 10 people. The department's headquarters sit very close to Highway 78, just behind the Lincoln Town Library, and Caddy Corner to the Lincoln Manor apartment complex. That apartment complex was one of the last places where Janice Becky LaPlante was ever seen alive. On July 25, 2011, She lived in the apartment with her boyfriend, and she'd been drinking and cooking out with friends on a hot, late summer night. Running low on beer, she and a friend, Alan, had decided to make a run to a local store for more. Alan returned, but Becky didn't. Though the police department sat just a few hundred yards from her own front door, a missing persons report wouldn't be filed for Becky. Not for weeks. If you want to find out about Becky LaPlante's life, you can't go to the press. Her disappearance barely touched the central Alabama media. Why? Perhaps because Becky was struggling with substance use, or because she had a history of mental health issues and a criminal record, which included a three-year sentence in state prison. Becky was also disabled and lived in subsidized housing, We can't say that any of that was why she wasn't given coverage, of course, but she wasn't. The barest bones exist to mark her disappearance. The practical, physical details have to be gathered from the Doe Network and from NamUs. 
Becky LaPlante is a white female and was 49 years old when she disappeared. At the time of her disappearance, she had brown hair, going a little gray, and blue-green eyes. One eye had been badly injured in the past, with the pupil permanently dilated. According to the Doe Network, the result was permanent blindness in that eye. She has identifying scars, both from multiple lung surgeries and cesarean section birth. Becky is described as a small woman, around 5'2 and maybe 90 pounds, and friends remember that on July 25th, she was dressed for the weather. A red tank top, cutoffs, white and blue sneakers, and two gold chain necklaces. In July 2011, it had been just a few weeks since Becky's biological daughter Tracy had visited from Texas with her baby granddaughter. There'd been plans for them both to stay in Alabama, but it hadn't worked out. So now it was back to Becky and her boyfriend and her friends at the apartment complex. Becky's sisters lived nearby too, and there were long-standing family friends all through town, like her ex-brother-in-law, Alan, who decided to walk to the gas station with her that night to get more beer for the cookout. On the night of July 25th, only Alan returned from the store. According to the Doe Network, Becky'd run into someone she knew there and had told Alan to go on ahead. No one thought much about that at the time, or so they'd say later. Becky LaPlante didn't have a car. She might catch a ride home with anyone. She might have ended up with other friends, someone else in town. When she'd been gone for more than a few days, though, they started to think differently. But what the Lincoln County Police can tell us, via reports released to the public databases, is that Becky's government accounts have remained inactive. Her social security number shows no activity. We're told that Becky's first disability check went uncashed, and that was significant because that check included back payments. That would have been substantial income for Becky. Whatever had happened to Becky LaPlante, it felt apparent that she hadn't left of her own volition. Alan, her ex-brother-in-law, had returned promptly with a beer. Her boyfriend, Eugene, was at the apartment the night she went missing, and to our knowledge, Eugene was not considered a suspect in her disappearance. But where was Becky? We're told there were rumors about what might have happened to her, but whether those translated to leads for the Lincoln Police Department, we don't know. Our FOIA request has not been fulfilled, and though we've reached out for comments multiple times to the detective assigned to her case, we haven't received a reply. And... That's been frustrating, because we are especially keen to verify some time-sensitive information that came to us as we were working on this series. You'll hear more about that in episode two, when a phone call brought one of Becky's biological daughters, Tracy, to a possible break in her case, and cutting-edge technology that may identify her mother. We said before that there wasn't mainstream information to be gleaned about Becky LaPlante, but that doesn't mean there's zero coverage of her case. Because Tracy, she made that coverage happen. She lived with Becky until she was 11 years old, before she and her twin sister were removed by CPS, Child Protective Services. Now, as an adult, Tracy has tried approaching news stations and papers in Alabama. 
She's spoken with people in town and gathered information. She stayed in touch with investigators. But no one was interested in covering Becky LaPlante's story. So Tracy decided that she was going to do it herself. Tracy's chosen the route of a growing number of victims' family members. She's taken her search for her mother online. In just a few months, she's grown her TikTok following to over 100,000. That's where she tells the story of her childhood, her mother, Becky's disappearance, what came after, theories in the case, and continual updates from investigators. And Tracy's followers? They are engaged. Tracy was a young mother when Becky disappeared back in 2011. Then, Tracy was living in Texas, overwhelmed, and going through a divorce. But now, relocated to the West Coast and settled in with her children and fiancé, she feels ready to take on this challenge. Her mother's case has been cold for 11 years. Tracy's goal is to change that, even if from thousands of miles away. And if there's one way she can make that happen, connecting with an audience who will not just watch, but engage with her mother's story, that may make the difference. We've said for a long time that audiences are ready to hear hard stories, different stories. They can understand that there are no perfect victims, but that a case's resolution should not rest on a set of moral standards that a victim must meet. But even more than that, families can have complicated feelings about their missing and murdered loved ones and still want to see those cases solved. This is not a zero-sum game. We first met Tracy this spring, when she connected with the fall line through our TikTok account. When we began watching her videos, it was clear. Tracy was reaching people, but she needed access to a bigger audience. Because the resolution of her mother, Becky LaPlante's case, was in her hands. To understand Tracy's story and Becky's, Tracy told us that she needs to go back to her own childhood. She doesn't know much about how Becky was raised, except that her mother grew up on the West Coast and spent time in foster care. Throughout Tracy's entire life, Becky had substance use issues. The severity varied, but her mother's drug use was a significant factor in their lives. My mom, well, I'm me and my sister, I have a twin sister, but we're fraternal. My mom wound up having us when she was six months pregnant. Me and my sister were born addicted to certain drugs. I don't know if I should even say them, but we were in the hospital for a long time. And my mom went through CPS and went through rehab and everything that she was supposed to do so she could keep us when we got out of the hospital. So she was able to get us. And then... It seemed like every now and then, for some reason, CPS would be called back to my mom's house for different reasons. She would leave us places, and she, I mean, even as babies and infants, and sometimes she, at some point, she slipped and fell downstairs when we were both in baby carrier, and we got hurt, and we went to the hospital, and I guess CPS was called again. We went into the foster care system when we were littler for a little bit, but not very long because she got us back. We kept getting juggled back and forth. This man that we always called dad and knew as dad, 
she and him got divorced when we were eight years old and she told us that he wasn't our dad and we would try to go see him and walk to his house to try to get away from everything that we were going through when we were little just because we were scared and we needed help because my mom was unfortunately she was addicted to drugs and it completely consumed her life and it consumed everybody else's life. Were there periods of time in her life when she got sober? I don't think so. I don't know. I think it became like just who she was. Maybe she wanted to. I would hope to say that, but I don't know. But Tracy remembers good in her mother, too. There was fun, time in nature, and sports, and love, and protection. We always went to the river and always thought we were camping out there, but I think it's because we didn't have anywhere to live, but it was still fun. We would always go to the river and go swimming and fishing and playing. I remember making mud shoes all the time, and she was always so impressed with my mud shoe abilities because I would sit there for hours, and then I would think I'd have to keep my feet in there while the sun cooks them. <laughs> and then I would stand up to walk, and then my mud shoes would break, and it was really sad. She taught us how to swim and how to fish, and... We started doing karate when we were younger, and then she started doing it with us just to help us, and then she became really good at it, and she wound up being an instructor. She excelled in that, going to like so many karate competitions and dominating everybody. She was small, smaller than me probably. It was amazing to watch her do that. She actually used whatever energy or whatever she had to, to do that and to be really good at it. It was really impressive, but a lot of people would try to fight her because of it. It was crazy. She would just thump somebody in the nose. No, not for real, but she would know like all the pressure points on people's bodies. Somebody would go to hit her, and she would just put her finger underneath their nose in a certain spot, and they would just drop. <laughs> and then my other aunt, we spent a lot of time with her, and it seemed like my mom and her were close. And... I don't know, at some point we didn't have anything to do with her, but I don't know if that's because of something that happened at her house one time. But we were at my aunt's house, and she had some guy over that we didn't know, and my mama was somewhere. I don't know where she was at. We were about 10 when this happened, and this guy was over, and he I'm pretty sure he was on drugs or something, but he grabbed a knife and cornered my sister into the cabinet and while she was sitting down. And I remember picking up the phone to call 911. And out of nowhere, I just remember the door flying open and my mom running in there. And I don't know if it was by the grace of God or whatever it was, but she ran in there and like grabbed that man and got him off of us and we left. But she reacted like, I feel like that's one of the times that she did defend us and was actually there, you know, like she actually did love us. I don't know how she ended up there at that perfect time or what, but she got there. So was your aunt there when this happened? Yeah, she was. But she didn't really do anything about it. That was a weird thing. She was like, oh, stop. She acted like this dude was playing, and he wasn't. But the other side of that coin, the energy, the fun, her mother's willingness to jump in, was the chaos of Tracy and her sister's life. Becky took the girls with her into dangerous situations, and their lives had little sense of normalcy. She would have us in the car, constantly driving around, looking for drugs and stuff. Overnight, 
our circadian rhythm got messed up so bad and I think mine is still messed up because we would be up until the sun come up not not be able to fall asleep until we were in school and then you're not supposed to fall asleep in school you get in trouble so we'd get in trouble and then come home and get in more trouble and you wind up learning how not to sleep much or sleep when you can kind of thing so we didn't go to school very much we missed 58 days of school I want to say and so we didn't even go for like barely any portion of the school year and we were failing and teachers started noticing my teacher noticed always tired and falling asleep in school and I remember in the lunchroom my tray of taco salad got knocked onto the floor and I picked it up and I ate it and then uh, they started seeing like the bruises and the marks and everything like that on me and they would ask me and I wouldn't talk to them about it or anything like that and then we had the dare program in school and they said you can put your question or anything in a box anonymously and nobody will know who it is. And I put in there that I think my mom was using drugs and she was hurting me. And of course, my teacher knew my handwriting. When you put that note in the little box, was that the first time you had let anybody know what was going on in your house? Yes. There was something in me that was telling me that she was going to kill me or somebody was going to kill me or my sister. And I couldn't live with that. I mean, I've had anxiety problems since I was a little kid. I'd have panic attacks and everything like that. Of course, nobody knew what that was back then. But now looking back, I know it was horrible and panic attacks because I was just so scared all the time. I couldn't trust anybody. I couldn't depend on nobody. I had nobody. It was just me and my sister, and she relied on me. And I had to take over the role of taking care of my sister. I had to take care of my mom. I had to take care of my sister. My mom just became to a point where she wasn't functionable. She couldn't dress herself. She couldn't do anything because she was just so messed up on drugs. The only thing she could do was look for the next high or we didn't have money. So we would have to go to the grocery store and steal food or we would have to steal clothes. We didn't get to get new shoes. So we would have to go to Kmart or Walmart, take our old shoes off, put them in the box and take the new shoes on and put them on and walk out the store. That was just how we were able to survive, honestly. And it never made sense to me when I was little. But now that I'm older, I can I can just have more empathy for her to understand that it wasn't her that was that. It was the drugs that consumed her. And she also suffered from a lot of mental health issues. And of course, she wasn't able to get help for that. And I think that she was just trying to pacify everything to have somewhat of a normal life by like surviving through what she was going through. Even though Tracy had asked for help, when it came, it was a shock. I remember it just happened in a whirlwind. We got off the school bus and CPS and police were there at our apartment and they took us and my mom hugged us and that was it. She said she'll see us again soon. I remember her saying that, but other than that, I don't, I don't know. In my heart, I knew that that was our last time being in that apartment and seeing our bedroom and everything like that. I was always really angry and sad about it for a long time, especially after when we were 11, we did get taken from her permanently and put into a foster care system. And I was angry and hurt and I couldn't understand anything. It didn't make sense to me. I was always wondering why we weren't good enough to be loved or what did we do wrong or everything like that. And 
at some point I got older and I learned how to forgive her and to try to understand what she went through. I'll never be able to wrap my head around it completely, but I don't know. And then we were adopted when we were 14 and it was a closed adoption. So we didn't have any more rights to our mom. She didn't have any rights to us or anybody in the family or anything like that. And that was really hard. I had to grieve that loss of her because I felt like I would never get to see her again. Tracy and her sister's adoption wasn't the secure situation they'd hoped for. They were able to stay in Alabama, but their new home and family had its own set of problems and trauma. Being in the adopted family was hard. They had a son that had passed away unexpectedly, and then they decided to adopt. They only wanted to adopt one child, but they were doing everything they could to keep us together. The state was, and they did, and we got adopted when we were 14, and that was a pretty bad experience. Just They weren't physically abusive or anything, but it was verbally and emotionally abusive, and you know, you can't do nothing right, or you got an A on your report card, but it's not a big enough A on your report card, or that was hard. And at times, I just wish that I was back with my mama as bad as everything was, because I at least, it's weird, but I felt a sense of security with her, maybe because I could blame what she was doing on drugs or the people she was with, you know, and I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that, you know, I have an adopted mom telling me I'm overweight when I weigh 80 pounds so my adopted mom one day we got out of school and they were having a fire down there in the fire pit and they were like burning all of our stuff they said that we couldn't we weren't allowed to hold on to the past so they burned all the art books my mom had drawn all of the picture frames picture albums my pillow everything that I had saved they just told us we couldn't hold on to the past that was really hard that messed me up Things came to a crisis point with Tracy's adoptive parents during her senior year of high school. They didn't like Tracy's boyfriend. Her sister was also having issues at home and ran away for a brief period of time. Their adoptive parents decided to move the girls to another high school, which was a serious upheaval. Another in a series that felt never-ending. When her adoptive parents found out that Tracy, who was 18, was still in contact with the boy she'd been dating at her original school, they told her she needed to move out of the house by her 19th birthday. The problem was, that day was coming up in just a few weeks. Tracy had saved up money from working and from a small social security check that she and her sister received from their biological father, but a lot of that money went toward her car. Her adoptive parents had purchased it for her, and she was making payments on it to them. So, with only a few thousand dollars to her name, Tracy moved out and married her boyfriend. They at first lived with his grandmother in Alabama, and then they moved to Texas after he joined the Army. Tracy's sister also left their adoptive parents' home. They were both on their own. By the time Tracy had a child of her own, her marriage was struggling and her twin sister let her in on some surprising news. She decided to get back in contact with Becky in Alabama. To do that, Tracy's sister had reached out to their older brother, 
who they hadn't had much contact with growing up, as he'd always lived with his father. Later down the road, when we moved out, my sister got in contact with my brother, and then he got in contact with my mama. And my sister had a relationship with her, and she asked me if I wanted a relationship with her, and I just told her I couldn't do it. You know, I'd already grieved through losing her. I couldn't do it again. I just didn't feel safe. I just, something in my stomach told me not to do it. But she wound up giving Mama my phone number, and we started talking again. And I was married at the time, and we were going to go through a divorce. So Mama told me to come to Alabama from Texas and that I could stay with her. I had a little girl at the time. She was two years old, and she just wanted a second chance. So I went to Alabama with me and my daughter, and I saw my mama. And when I saw her, honestly, it felt, I wish I could explain it. I felt numb inside almost. It felt like I was hugging a stranger. She was hugging me and crying and telling me how sorry she was, but I don't know if it's just because I had built a wall up or what it was. Maybe it was a defense mechanism, but I really didn't feel anything, but I wanted to so bad. That was the first time she met her, and she was so good with her. At one point, I remember tearing up because she was so good to her, and at some point, I was just like, she was never that way with me, but maybe that was her second chance. And I feel like she did think that Jordan was her second chance to at least be a good grandma. She couldn't have been a good mom. Maybe she could have been a good grandma. Tell me about what circumstances your mom was living in when you first got there to stay with her. So it was an apartment complex and the police station's right across the road. That's pretty ironic, but there was a lot of drug activity going on and I didn't get a good vibe about it at all. And then. When her neighbors told me there were two ladies that my mom had been like taking care of, and they both had been found dead and rolled up in a carpet. And I don't know how true this is, but this is just what the neighbor told me. And they said that my mom was under surveillance or like the under suspicion or something that she might have had something to do with it. So I don't know. That was weird. That scared me. Were they elderly? Yeah, they were elderly women. How did you meet the neighbors? She had introduced me to the neighbors when they were all outside. And she was like, this is my daughter. And the neighbor came up and was talking to me when my mom was living around. And she was like, I just want you to know you need to be careful. Your mom, there's this going on. And she's still heading into drugs. And she's also sex working and all this other stuff. And I don't think it's safe for you or your baby. So we left, me and my ex-husband got back together. I drove back to Texas. And then two weeks later, me and my mama didn't talk a whole lot anyways. Especially after that, I told her, you know, I just, I need some time to think about everything. I just need to leave. Me and my ex are getting back together. We're going to try to make this work for me and my daughter. And so I go back to Texas. And then two weeks later, I get a phone call from this old man that my mama was living with. But he asked me if I'd seen my mama, and he said that we think that she's with you. And I'm like, how is she with me? What? No. Well, I tell him, have you filed a police report? No. Why have you not filed a police report? She's been missing since 
July 25th, and this was in August sometime, and it was just crazy. I got him to make a police report, and then I wound up calling down there and trying to validate everything that he had said just based off the little bit of information that I have, you know, and I had talked to her brother Tim was there at that party, and he was there when she left to go get beer and all that. So I was told that my mama was at the apartment that they lived at and everybody was drinking and cooking out and doing all this other stuff that they wanted to do. And at some point they were running out of beer and alcohol. So my mama and Alan, my aunt's ex-husband, decided they were going to walk to the store together to go get some more beer. But Alan came back and he seemed to be after normal and everything. He had beer and everything. And he said that she ran into somebody she knows and she was going to stay there and talk to him and they were going to give her a list back to the apartment. Well, that didn't happen. She never showed back up and she's never seen or heard from or anything. It's just like she just completely vanished into thin air and nobody knows. It feels like a lot of people don't care because she suffered through addiction and drugs and everything like that. That's the sentiment that Tracy ran into the most as she tried to piece together what happened to her mother from half a country away. That feeling, stated and unstated, that Becky wasn't worth looking for. Or even why Tracy, who'd been so hurt, was looking so hard. She's had varying levels of communication with Lincoln law enforcement since her mother's disappearance in 2011. Sometimes, she's been able to gather good information on the case. Other times, she struggles to remain in contact. I feel like a lot of people question me a lot. Well, you went through such a hard time when you were little. Why would you even care? And the only thing I can say is that she's still my mama at the end of the day. And if I was her, I would hope that my kids or somebody would be looking for me. I wish there was a longer explanation about what completely happened to her and everything like that. But it's just, it's crazy. There's no information really other than that. And it feels like nobody's cared enough to even look for her or anything. Like we've gone through a few different investigators and it's so frustrating. Like I know that they live in a small town. They can only work with certain people, I guess. But it just feels like everybody's been dragging their feet. July 25th, this year will be 11 years since she's been gone. When Tracy began speaking to people in her family and to friends around Lincoln, the same few names kept coming up. And the one she heard the most often was that of a man she refers to by the pseudonym of Leroy, someone who was well-known to her mother. He was a fixture in the local drug scene and someone with at least a modicum of influence. So how did you start even thinking about theories of what could have happened ever since day one well it always just confused me and made me have such a sick feeling in my stomach to think about how the ants haven't called and these are things that the investigators have brought to my attention I didn't come up with that at all like they said she hasn't called that they haven't heard from them everything like that and then my theory is with the whole Leroy thing I've met him. He's a bad person. Like He's always talked about bad things that he's done to people. He 
completely sexualizes women. He's very just a disgusting human. Just very disgusting. Vile. He thinks SA is funny. He thinks it's not real. He's just inappropriate uh, with everything. And he's talked about how he hurts people and how his dad was the leader of the KKK and how he's so racist. And he's just, he's not worth this oxygen on this planet. So where was he the night of the party? I don't know about that, but from my gathering, he was down there to give my mom pills because my mom would get pills and stuff from him. And I think that he met her down there at that gas station and something went awry at some point, or maybe she was in the car with him and used a drug and maybe she overdosed on it or something like that. And he did something with her. I don't know. It's just like a gut feeling I have that he knows something. Did the neighbor give any kind of description of the friend that she was talking to or the car? Mm-mm, he didn't. And this guy died right after my mom went missing. Alan did. That was who walked with her? Yeah, Alan walked with her. According to Tracy, investigators told her that Alan's cause of death was, quote, natural causes. That's all the information she has. As for what might have happened to Becky and why she hasn't been found for all these years, Tracy has thoughts on that subject, too. She worries that her mother was killed or died accidentally and that her body was hidden. As to where that might have happened, if it did, she can't be sure. But if Becky died in Lincoln and her death and remains were obscured in town, there are rumors that point to a few possibilities. And there's one in particular that sticks out to Tracy. Tracy has been given information regarding her mother's associate, Leroy, and his family property. And she wonders if there's a possibility that the answer to Becky's case lies there. I was actually talking to one of my really good friends, and she knows that area and that family really well and everything like that. And she was actually the one that was talking to me about the pond because I was down there when he was planning on building the pond, but it wasn't his first intention to build a pond. His first intention was to dig a big hole to burn his trash, even though he works for the trash company and probably doesn't even have to pay for trash, but he was complaining about the fees for trash. And that struck me weird. And then apparently he burned his trash, which is illegal anyways. And then he decided that he was going to turn it into something. So he filled it in and then it was a pond for a little while. And then at some point he decided to fill that in too. And maybe it's just a coincidence, maybe. I don't know. There's just a strong, gross feeling inside of me to my core. It feels like maybe she's there or maybe she's on that property somewhere. I feel like within my heart of hearts and with every bit of my intuition, I feel like this person had something to do with my mom's disappearance. I know that he was bad about handing out pills and drugs and all this other stuff to everybody that he knew probably and I don't know maybe she did the drug around him and maybe it was fentanyl or maybe it was something that would 
cause her to die from it. And maybe he got scared and dumped her somewhere or did something like that. I feel like there's probably drugs around it somehow. Or it could be even more sinister than that. But since she was so heavily reliant on drugs that maybe that's what happened. I don't know. These are probably just theories because I have nothing better to do than sit here and worry about this and to try to imagine things. But I didn't even come up with this theory first. It was my cousin that told me. She was like, you know, he dug that pond right around the time that your mama went missing and blah, 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 blah. And I, it just got me thinking like, oh my God, what if? I think you're in the position that a lot of victims' families are, which is you're left with so little information to go on. You just, your mind goes all sorts of places. Yeah, it does. But for a long time, that's all Tracy could do. Think and worry and wonder. After 11 years, her mother's case felt stalled. She couldn't interest the media. Her contact with law enforcement was spotty. That's when she decided to turn to social media to help spread awareness of Becky's case. And that led to something that Tracy couldn't have imagined. Beyond the 100,000 followers and the sudden action and the attention of creators. Something bigger. A possible answer to the mystery of Janice Becky LaPlante's disappearance. Coming in real time as she worked on this story with us. Perhaps her initial theories had some truth to them, but perhaps she'd been looking in the wrong place all along. Next time on The Fall Line, Tracy gets her voice and sets everything in motion. If you have additional information regarding the case of Janice Becky LaPlante, you can call the Lincoln Police Department at 256-761-1556. If you know of a case that should be covered on the fall line, there's a link to our case submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is an independently produced show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIA, pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try out the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us over on Patreon. We're raising Patreon funds to continue to pay the monthly rent on the Millbrook Twins billboard and to fund therapy for families who've been on the show. Each and every one of our patrons helps us continue this work, and we're so grateful. On Patreon, you can get early release ad-free versions of our regular episodes, plus blogs and videos, at only $5 a month. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Waters, Kiana Burgess, and Michaela Morrill. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Line editing by Bill Birchinger. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Angie Dodd. Currently, our monthly donation is going to Private Investigations for the Missing. Please, join us in supporting this nonprofit. They need funds to help families access the services of PIs. <laughs>